0: Welcome to episode 1960 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rally of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. Well, we have a Hall of Famer,
1: mm-hmm. brand
0: new one, or at least a Hall of Famer elect, because the induction ceremony is not until... Next summer or this following summer, if we want to be pedantic, and when don't we? Yes. But congratulations to uh, Scott Roland. All caveats aside, he has been elected. He just—he uh, squeaked over the line, seventy-six point three percent support. So he had a five-vote margin over the seventy-five percent election threshold. He was uh, the narrowest to get in since Ivan Rodriguez in twenty seventeen, and there were only a handful of guys going back to the beginning of annual voting in nineteen sixty six who squeaked over the line by less, but. Once you get in, it really doesn't matter by how much you get in, except maybe to your ego. So happy day for Scott Rowland and for fans of Scott Rowland.
1: Yeah, the Hall of Fame. It's just like the Series 7. You pass and no one remembers what you got, you know? Mm -hmm.
0: You think the the Hall of Famers uh, taunt each other about their percentages when they meet in Cooperstown every summer? (laughs) Just like pick on the guy who got 76 and and the other guys who get uh, high 90s or something. You know, there's there's a tier, right? People talk about inner circle Hall of Famers, whatever that means. So probably Hall of Famers themselves think of things that way to some extent too. You know, some of them fool themselves into thinking they're inner circle guys and really they're mid or outer circle but they're all in so that's the important thing
1: yeah i mean once you're there uh you get the plaque you get to walk out on the stage and i think that unless you're like a unanimous selection you mm-hmm. know they don't people don't really remember what your percentage was you know they just mm-hmm. don't
0: yep no Probably Jay Jaffe remembers And uh, we will be talking to Jay (laughs) A little later in this episode About all things Hall of Fame I mean, only Mario Rivera is unanimous So no one else can even claim that distinction But yeah, Scott Rowland will go in With Fred McGriff uh, A couple players who wore number 27 Although they each wore other numbers as well Third baseman relative to other positions Still underrepresented in the Hall But a little more represented now This is only the second player who's gotten in v. the BBWA ballot in the past three years, which is tied for the fewest over any three-year span in modern voting. But big difference between one and none. And you know, Roland was clearly going to get in one of these years, like after last year's result, I think. But there was still a lot of suspense about whether he would get in this year. And because he was only in his sixth year of eligibility and only 47 years old, there wasn't as much time pressure as there right. is with with some guys who are on their last chance or you know they've reached an age where it's like, well, we want them to be able to enjoy this, right? So we shouldn't dally here. But one factor I really hadn't considered is that, yeah, even though Scott Rowland, you know, unless some tragedy fell him, was going to be around for the next voting cycle, his parents weren't necessarily. I mean, you never know. And there's a a heartwarming video. There are always heartwarming videos of the players finding out. But there's a really nice video of Scott Rowland's elderly parents being told by their son that he is a hall of famer and that's just great. I mean, they're both clearly proud and overjoyed and weeping and uh, I'm really glad that they all got to share that moment together. So, so there's not a dry eye in that house or the house of anyone who was watching that clip, which of course I will link to.
1: Yeah. I, I think that um, it serves as a good reminder because the, you know, the, the discourse around this stuff can get so, well, let's call it fraught, right? Mm -hmm. Let's, Let's not assign more judgmental words to it, though we could if we wanted to. But the discourse around the Hall of Fame can be so fraught, and I know a lot of people don't care anymore, and I know that even for those who are invested in sort of preserving baseball history, some of the complications around it are such that they elect not to vote like you. Mm -hmm. And I like these wholesome moments because I feel like it really brings to the fore, like, what is... What is the most meaningful here? And this stuff matters so much to these guys and their families. It just really matters. And I, I, I'm not saying that you are indifferent to that in your mm-hmm. decision to abstain. That That's not what I mean at all, Ben. But, you know, I hope that um, when my time comes, if I'm lucky enough to persist in the BBWA without annoying people too much uh, and getting kicked out, that uh, I will remember that because you should, You should treat the exercise with reference because it is very meaningful to to these players and to the people who uh, care about them. So Mm -hmm. I I like that we get an opportunity every year when we don't pitch a shutout to reconnect with that reality because I think it's an important one to keep at the center of this process.
0: Yep. Well, Scott Rowland, heck of a player, not always recognized as the player he was during his time, but uh, I think it's a feature, not a bug, that sometimes perceptions change and minds can be changed, and we have the time to do that. The Baseball Reference Newsletter had a a little uh, leaderboard of all players with 175-plus batting runs and 175 plus fielding runs. So these are the hitting and fielding components of war. And I know those are not magic numbers the way that 3000 hits or or 500 homers at least used to be, you know, the 175 R bat, 175 R field club, but it's uh, quite a club. And, uh, (laughs) Adrian Beltre is one of the other members, and and he should be elected next year. But only seven players have cracked that club. Scott Rowland, Barry Bonds, Beltray, Cal Ripken Jr., Cal Riosramski, Roberto Clemente, Willie Mays. No one has doubts about any of the other six, I mean, other than, you know, Barry Bonds and and his whole baggage. But in terms of uh, playing career and performance on the field... And so Scott Rowland, you know, look, did he just make it with exactly 175 fielding runs? Uh, Yes, (laughs) but he belongs in that kind of company. Obviously, we could draw inner circle, outer circle distinctions between the likes of uh, Willie Mays and and Scott Rowland, but nonetheless great player, whether or not he was uh, always recognized as such during his career or subsequently. There was a lot of suspense uh, up until the last moment, as we will talk about with Jay, although there was also, if you were on the baseball subreddit, there was a spoiler, which uh, someone (laughs) (laughs) pointed out. It's it's pretty amusing because this is not the first time that this has happened. So this was uh, posted on the baseball subreddit on Tuesday before the election results were announced. And essentially, the Hall of Fame spoiled things because their format for players' Hall of Fame pages is baseballhall.org slash Hall of Famers slash last name, first name. Mm-hmm. And someone on Reddit noticed that if you typed in Roland hyphen Scott at the end, you got a message that said you are not authorized to access this page. Whereas if you typed in other candidates who, as we know now, did not get in, you got a page not found error, which was certainly suggestive that that page existed and was uh, built and was just not publicly accessible yet. So that was kind of a tip off. And there was a, a similar incident, I think it was seven years ago, with Ken Griffey Jr. and Mike Piazza. Not that there I was, I think that oh,
1: that is correct.
0: Yeah, there was not a lot of suspense about Ken Griffey Jr. getting in, but nonetheless, uh, there was a similar sort of spoiler posted then. Because if you typed in, like, their URL, it went from the page could not be found to, like, you can't access this page, you know, which <laughs> is it's sort of a tell. So that's amusing. I mean, they should probably figure this out, right? Because if they want to keep the suspense and I know not most people who are, like, watching the ballot reveal on MLB Network and following these things are on the baseball subreddit. But still, there's probably a way you could camouflage that, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, one would think. Now... One would also maybe think that you could, you know, cast a ballot electronically. <laughs> or. And uh, as a BBWA member, I shouldn't be casting stones at mm-hmm. the the Hall of Fame's glass house because, like, you know, I still have to write a paper check for my dues. Don't know about you. <laughs> yes, so, um, yeah, me too. Yep. <laughs> yeah, those checks are like three addresses ago. By the way, <laughs> still, yeah, me they too. still work. Like, <laughs> you know, you don't have to update them. Like, oh, it doesn't matter.
0: Yeah, it's it's like one of the I don't know two or three checks I write per year, if Mm -hmm. that. Like, I have to remind myself, how do I write a check again? (laughs) Oh, right. Right, (laughs) Every time I send the PBWA dues. So, yeah, Yeah. we've not joined this this millennium yet. No,
1: no. We are all of us um, struggling to catch up in our own ways. (laughs) But, yeah, I would hope that someone has pointed out to the Hall that this remains an issue. Because like yesterday, they probably didn't know about it until afterward because they were busy, you know, getting ready to like uh, name a Hall of So, Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I wondered because, as you said, I I didn't vote. I've discussed my reservations with the process uh, before at some length, so I won't rehash that here. But I just did not submit a ballot, did not submit a blank ballot, just did not submit a ballot, big difference. (laughs) But I wondered because uh, I got a couple calls from the hall in the days leading up to the announcement just making sure that my ballot hadn't been lost or that I hadn't tried to submit one, which I don't recall happening last year. And so I was thinking, huh, I wonder whether they realized that no one got in, they got skunked again, and now they're like calling around to make sure they didn't lose a ballot somewhere that would get someone in. Like maybe it would just be a, I was worried. It's like, uh uh-oh, is this going to come down to one vote? Are are my mentions going to be bad? Are people going to be mad at me? Because I was the one who didn't give Scott Rowland the one vote he needed. Mm As it turns out, as Jay will mention, one voter's uh, ballot apparently was lost in the mail. So maybe they were calling around because uh, once that happened, they wanted to make sure that it didn't happen to anyone else. (laughs) But but yeah, that was uh, making me curious before the results were announced. Anyway... Congrats to Scott Rowland, yes. and we'll we'll talk about everyone else who came close and uh, put themselves in position to get in in one of these years. I I saw an argument. I I wonder whether you find this persuasive because we'll talk a little bit about this with Jay, but not in depth. Billy Wagner was one of the players who took a significant leap, and and yeah. now looks like he is poised to get in in one of the next few years. And Mark Armour of Saber, who's been on the show. He tweeted, there was never a moment during Billy Wagner's career when I wouldn't have happily traded him for Andy Pettit. Right. And Andy Pettit did not get nearly the same level of support and has not seen the same sort of growth. And Jonathan Bernstein pointed out on Twitter also their salary histories would seem to support that. You know, baseball people at the time were willing to pay more for the services of Andy Pettit than Billy Wagner. And same for Cy Young voters, for instance. So in that sense, Hall of Fame voters are sort of out of step with uh, how those players were perceived at the time. Now, we were just talking about the fact that perceptions can evolve and that that can be a good thing and i know pettit has the hgh uh, thing on his right. record so you know substitute mark burley or or tim hudson or some other comparable starter who has recently been eligible for that and wagner has way outstripped them and i guess this comes down to the fact that people now are are looking at starter and reliever at just separate positions. Yeah, and Wagner was incredibly dominant as a reliever, more so than Pettit was as a starter. Even although Pettit certainly has a, a Cooperstown case in his own right, and so people are just saying, well, there are relievers in. And so if we're putting relievers in, then Wagner compares favorably to some of the guys who are already in. And he was just so good at his job, despite the job being more limited, that he should be in. But what do you make of of that argument?
1: So I tend to take the following approach to the hall. And I reserve the right to change this approach as my own ballot approaches. Mm Mm-hmm. But I tend to take what I might call a like a Noah's Ark approach to the Hall of Fame. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that uh, there should be well, it doesn't necessarily have to be two. You can have more or less, not a lot less, but less. But, mm-hmm. you know, I understand that it is a kind of pitcher, but I think that it is a distinct kind. I actually think that the argument for including relievers is more persuasive for. Th- past generations of relievers maybe than current ones where the, yeah. the line continues to blur between starter and reliever but like i think that it is a it is a position and so the best of the guys at that position should be in the hall Just like Mm -hmm. I think that, like, you know, the best DH should be in the Hall. And he is. His name's Edgar Martinez. That's a little (laughs) knock to you Boston fans out there. (laughs) Sound off in the comments. Um, No, don't do that. Ortiz is great. It's fine. They're both Hall of Famers. It doesn't matter anymore, you know? Here's the thing. It doesn't matter. It's fine. Everybody's Mm -hmm. happy, you know? Everyone got what they wanted, uh, including me. So (laughs) I appreciate the argument that is being made that if you – were good enough to be a starter, you just would probably be a starter in most cases. Right. And that relievers are failed starters in some respect. I think that that tends to um, smooth over and, uh, and not do justice to like how player dev actually works, particularly now. But mm-hmm. I appreciate the argument, right? That like if you could go a few more innings and reliably get through an order more times, you'd just be a starter. Yep, I get it. But I also think that like we have relievers and so the best of them should be in there. And they do generate value for their teams. They can create sort of a sense of psychological security on the part of their fans. And I think that it's interesting, like they, at least in terms of how they are operating now, like if you look at the way that relievers are valued in the free agent market in the last couple years, like Clearly, teams value good relief pitching because it isn't quite in step with the rest of the free agent market, right? They tend to Mm -hmm. make more than you'd expect them to, at least in the last, I don't know, five to seven years. So I think that the use of relievers and how many innings they're pitching and how interchangeable they are you know how front offices value them in the free agent market like that stuff's going to change and shift around over time um and so pegging the the argument should they be in the hall or not to that seems in some ways like a fool fool's errand but um i think that we can refer to something more biblical and simply Mm -hmm. say that like they exist and we want them in the ark yeah i don't know what flood we're saving ourselves from but um (laughs) you know here we are
0: (laughs) Yeah, I get that argument. It's the whole, like, is DH, uh, is is that a separate position, or is it just a less valuable way to be a hitter, basically, or is a reliever, is that a distinct position from starter, or is it just a less valuable, generally, way to be a starter? I I think, I mean, Wagner started out his pro career as a starter. He was, I think, exclusively a starter until he made his major league debut. He was just a starter uh, in the minors, and then he started pitching in relief in the leagues. And I don't know whether you can even say he was a failed starter necessarily. Right. I think he was just so successful as a reliever right. that they were like, let's not mess with this maybe. Yeah. And I think you could make the case that while Wagner probably wouldn't have been as successful as a starter as Pettit was, you could also say that Pettit might not have been as successful as a reliever as Wagner was because uh, there are different skill sets and different yeah mentalities and different repertoires. And there's a certain skill set that enables you to be durable and go deep into games, but maybe not be quite as dominant on an inning per inning basis. And it would be really tough to be more dominant than Billy Wagner was on an inning per inning basis where he had strikeout rates early in his career that would not look out of place today. And that was 25 years ago. Like He was uh, a bit ahead of his time in that respect. So. If I were voting, it would be a little tough for me that, that he basically pitched 900 innings in his career in the regular season. It's just it's not a lot of innings. And but... I want to
1: be clear. I'm not saying I would necessarily vote for yeah. Billy Wagner. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I would engage with that. But I'm yeah. saying that like there are relievers for whom I could envision voting.
0: Right, yeah, right. It, it's an interesting argument. I mean, you have uh, Rivera, and you have some of the the early multi inning right. type guys, and then everyone else basically. And and as you said, the distinctions between roles are blurring to the point sure. that this might not continue to be as big a deal. And we're going to talk about this with Jay a little later. But I, I just I mind the the absolutist reductionist arguments. Yeah. Uh, you know, where people try to oversimplify things and and only deal in absolutes, not Hall of Fame voters, and so if uh people say well it's a reliever it's a position on the team and therefore if you're great at that then you should be in i don't know i mean it's all pitchers it's all getting outs it's all run prevention and if you do that in a way that is less valuable than a starter i don't know that it makes sense to draw that distinction even though teams obviously do and they define people by those roles but it's just it's always complex so people look for ways to find shortcuts and sort of simplify the thought process for themselves if you can reduce it to a few hard and fast rules or at least rules of thumb it's uh it's easier to rule people out or rule people in and and sometimes it's uh, sort of squishy
2: well
1: and i i guess like part of it for me is that i don't know that i really understand like how much consternation there is around the reliever question in particular mm-hmm. because it isn't like we are overrun with relievers in the Hall of Fame, no. right? Mm-hmm. Even from earlier eras when, you know, the standards were a little shakier at times, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they're, what, eight? Isn't it like eight? Hall yeah, of not a lot. Uh, yeah. Hall mm-hmm. of Fame relievers, right? And when you think about the guys who have pitched in the modern era, like, it's Mo, right? So are we worried that they are overrepresented at this moment in time? I, I tend to think that these things sort of sort themselves out. And if anything given how so like the number of innings covered by relievers keeps growing and it is clear that front offices view most relievers as pretty fungible right there's a lot of Mm -hmm. up down guys maybe a little fewer up down guys now that they can't be optioned as many times in a year but like you know the number of mainstay always on the roster guaranteed to see big high leverage innings guys that isn't a huge population and it's certainly not a population that like pers that tends to really persist like you have to be an elite guy for a long time to be a dude where you know five years after your career is over we're going to even talk about you as a possibility so i understand that we have to get squirrely about something come hall of season and I'd much rather get squirrely about this than like, you know, PED stuff or, you know, how we interpret the character clause in a consistent, usable, workable way. But it seems to me like this is a a solution in want of a problem. Cause I, I think we're doing fine when it mm-hmm. comes to relievers. You know, right. I think yeah. we're we're okay. You know, there we got we got some uh guys to go in the art. I don't even like I'm not even religious. It's just like a useful categorization (laughs) tool. I don't know if it even works, Ben.
0: Yeah, I mean, Trevor Hoffman is in too, right? But, but, yeah, sure. so like it's there aren't yeah. a lot. It's, yeah. right. It, and, you know, yes. Francisco Rodriguez got enough support to stay on the to ballot this time persist,
1: and and, but... and you'll
0: have conversations, I'm sure, about uh, Kenley Jansen and Craig Kimbrell and, and others. But, Chapman, but no, it, probably, yeah, it's not like we've been overrun, you know, and, and even like, uh, someone like Joe Nathan, he fell off the ballot his, right. his first chance, right? Even right. though he, he had a decent case compared to some other guys. So, right. so yeah, I'm not saying it's. It's an acute issue. It's uh, an interesting intellectual exercise, I think.
1: I know you're not Mm -hmm. saying it. (laughs) People, people are saying it. Someone, a lot of stress.
0: Yes, yes, yes. So, uh, just a couple of quick things here before we bring on Jay. First, uh, there was one semi-interesting transaction, which I I bring up for one specific reason, and that's Alberto Mondesi was uh, traded to the Red Sox from the Royals for left-handed pitcher Josh Taylor, and... I don't know exactly where he'll slot in. Roster Resource right now has him at second base. I don't know if he'll end up playing some short. I don't know whether this will endanger the Adam Duval full-season center fielder experiment if Kike Hernandez gets to play more outfield now. But Alberto is, uh he's a tantalizing talent, yeah. right? And uh, and the Red Sox needed a real infielder, and he is that, or yep. he would be if he's healthy. And that's always the right. question with Mondesi. He's, uh, he's fast. Uh, he is showing... Own a, a really entertaining and intriguing suite of skills, but yes. he has very rarely stayed on the field, yeah. and also he's had plate discipline issues, etc. Yes. So it'd be great if he had a, a healthy full season and, and put it all together. Yeah. But I bring this up, and, and I just want to put this out there, just in case I, I get hit by a bus or something. Like I, I need someone out there in the world to be aware of this, and. I'm going to pick on Bill James for a second. And uh, look, uh, all of us in this line of work, we owe Bill James something, some debt. If not for Bill James, uh, would we be here doing an analytically oriented podcast at an analytically oriented website in 2023? Who knows? It would be a very different history for, for baseball analysis, I think. but every now and then uh, bill james will uncork a tweet and you know some of these tweets are are kind of concerning for non baseball related reasons but this is one that i've uh, had my eye on for for some time here Bill James loved Alberto Mondesi when when he came up like he he thought he was the bee's knees and that he was going to be an incredible player and not an unreasonable thing to think. uh, Back in 2018, when in 75 games, he was an above average hitter and he stole 32 bases and great base running and great defense and was, uh, you know, quite valuable in fractions of a, a season. And we didn't know that he would basically only have fractions of a season for the next several seasons. But but Bill James was uh, anointing Alberto Mondesi as, as like the, the best of that crop of players. Mm. You know, he uh, in 2019, he said Alberto Mondesi is a future MVP, just for those of you not watching. I guess we can't disprove that yet. But the one that I remember is uh, September 19th, 2018. Alberto Mondesi, not eligible for the Rookie of the Year award, but seems like obviously the best new player of the year. Now, there were a lot of great players that year. So the first reply was, are we ignoring Acuna and Soto or just talking AL? And Bill James clarified, I just meant the AL. However, he continued, Soto and Acuna are on the same level. So he's saying, you know, they're at Adalberto Mondesi's level. But beyond that, 2018 was also the first year in MLB for one Shohei Otani. And I remember thinking at the time, even though by that point, I guess Otani had had already had injury issues as a pitcher... The idea that uh, one would value Adalberto Mondesi higher than Otani or or project Mondesi's career to be better, that seemed unreasonable to me. Now look, we've all been very wrong about things and players, and uh, I'm not accepting myself from that. But Mondesi over Otani, that seemed strange to me, and I was not the only one. So someone tweeted back at Bill James, at JMC underscore PGH, I would bet a significant amount of money that Otani greater than Mondesi in career war, okay? And Bill James's reply, commissioner doesn't allow me to bet. This was when he was still working for the Red Sox, I guess, in some capacity. And I don't have a significant amount of money, but I'll graciously accept your apology in five years. And then the original tweeter responded, fair enough, gentlemen's wager then. It's rare that I find myself disagreeing with you. And Bill James replied, we'll try to remember it. And then the original tweeter replied, sounds good, Bill. Thanks for the response. So, okay, uh, you know, nice, wholesome, civil Twitter back and forth. Well, I've had a, a Google Reminder <laughs> to uh, revisit this five years down the road, just in case Bill and this original tweeter did not remember it. I, I set a Google alert so that I would be reminded five years uh, when the term that that Bill set here, this gentleman's wager, when he said he would accept this other tweeter's apology, and we're coming up on it now. So this September will be the five-year anniversary of that wager, and my Google alert will go off on that day. But just in case. Something happens to me or I'm indisposed or something and no one else remembers this. I had to uh, put Bill on blast here just to ensure that someone would follow up on this wager. And uh, I think it's probably safe to say that uh, this has been decided <laughs> in favor of Otani. I mean, is there anything that Alberto Mondesi could do between now and the end of their respective careers to uh, make him, obviously, the best new player of 2018? If, if Otani never played <laughs> another game and Alberto Mondesi did get his uh, MVP award that Bill James forecasted, <laughs> I think even then, I, I think, think that, then. that ship has sailed. So I mean...
1: I mean, he could have, like, Otani could. We need, like, a default. He decides he wants to be a baker, is mm-hmm. the thing that happens, right? Because I hate it when we're like, he. Yeah. I, I can't don't want him play. to have to get hurt. Yeah. Yeah. He's moved to do something else with his life. Yeah. He's decided to commit himself yeah. to souffles.
0: Yeah. Or he plays some other sport and excels at that sure. instead.
1: Right. Although, if he did that, he would still be remembered as the best player from 2018. If he then went on to be (laughs) like pro worthy in another sport, that would not (laughs) alter his baseball legacy. I think it would only enhance it, actually. But, like, let's say that he decides he wants to, you know, um, pursue a a different line of work. uh, And then Modesty went on to win multiple MVPs. And maybe have like memorable postseason moments. Mm-hmm. Then perhaps, then mm-hmm. maybe Ben, we mm-hmm. would sort of reorient our understanding of that. Um, but I, I do find it unlikely because
0: <laughs> yes, I imagine Bill would too at this stage. But yeah, uh, <laughs> I would
1: find it unlikely. First of all, I think first impressions tend to to really stick, you know. Mm-hmm. And the two way player thing—it's just like a, you know—it's mm-hmm. just gonna. It's just gonna be the thing that everyone points to, you know. It's the it's the ultimate scoreboard move, you know.
0: Yep. Yep. Yeah. This uh, this is you know part and parcel, I guess, with Otani being a bit underrated at the time, and I understand just why it was hard to imagine that anyone could consistently do what he was attempting to do. But but he had a track record at that point. Is the thing why I had faith in him is that he had he had done it in NPB even younger.
1: (laughs) <laughs> Who are you trying to persuade? I know. I it know. can't possibly be me. I was, <laughs> I was, I was devastated when I found out that he wasn't going to be a Seattle Mariner, and particularly yeah. when he was going to go to the Angels. In fact, Ben, mm-hmm. am I correct to recall? Am I right to remember that we were maybe podcasting when the decision happened? When oh, it, were we at
0: the moment? I forget.
1: Cuz I remember that well, hmm, I hmm I <laughs> <laughs> what day what day was it, Ben, that he that he ended up signing, you know? What what was the day yeah. when he hmm. made the decision, you know, we should leave all of this in. It was in December. Okay, so I think we were I think we were podcasting because I think that I was being introduced as the editor of the Hardball Times.
0: Oh, really? Huh. I
1: think. I think maybe. I think.
0: I, I, this is a, this is a very specific st- memory. <laughs>
1: well, it was a big time. You know. was It was a. Yeah. It, uh, uh, it was meaningful to me. Or maybe I was mm-hmm. on the phone with Appleman.
0: Yeah, maybe, maybe that I was had it. Just
1: gotten the. You see the problem is <laughs> You were I talking searched...
0: to somewhere someone somewhere when you learned that <laughs> that well, it was O'Totty it was a related
1: to it was related to fan graphs and mm. i feel like we were maybe podcasting were we podcasting perhaps with bill
0: barnwell oh well we we definitely did do a pod with bill at one time i <laughs>
1: i wanna i'm going to yes ben ben <laughs> i think i'm right no, okay. I'm wrong. Okay. But it was around then.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, you know? that was that was early January 2018 when yeah, we did the okay. pod with with Bill. Yeah, I, looks like uh, we
1: were talking to Daniel Adler.
0: Yes, Adler as well. Now with with in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you were talking to someone at the time. I think and... I was
1: talking to Appleman. Maybe I <laughs> yeah, think maybe that might I was sense. talking to. to... <laughs> Anyway, this has been me not being able to like navigate the wiki quickly enough to just (laughs) say like, and definitively, it was this. Mm -hmm. Man, you know, Ben, this uh, the wiki's a really good resource.
0: Oh, it's the best! I'm so grateful to everyone who has uh, populated that with information. Yeah,
1: because then we don't have to rely on my. Apparently quite faulty (laughs) memory.
0: Yes, this is what happens. It's like, this is why when you read Glory of Their Times and, you know, other oral histories and and players reminiscing about their careers, it's like, remember, I had this incredible game and I I faced this guy and I did that in that game. And then you look it up and you you realize, oh, that can't be the case because you never played that person that season or that can't have happened in the same game. And you kind of conflate these things. Same thing happened in here. We're all mortal. We're all fallible. None of us has... uh, a perfect memory and that's why I set a Google alert when I want to dunk on Bill James five well, years there later you go. See <laughs> right. now,
1: now It makes good sense Well, wow, There's a lot of like Jeremy Renner ads On the wiki right now
0: uh, Well we can't control the ads on there unfortunately the That's a, a fandom platform Problem by the way I'm not really going to Dunk on Bill James I'm not going to do a Old takes exposed style retweet Just going to politely remind the Man who won the wager that he won the wager Just in case he forgot All right. So last thing I want to say, just a quick uh, (laughs) follow up on our ongoing baseball exceptionalism discussion about ways that baseball stands out from other sports. So we had a a couple of responses. We talked about the scoreboard last time as something Mm -hmm. that sets baseball apart just in its granularity in showing not just the current score, but how we arrived at that score half inning by half inning. Couple responses, one from B.R. Krebs, who writes, the inning-by-inning inning scoreboard isn't just unique to baseball. Curling keeps track of every end as well, oh. telling the full story of the game as it goes. Not sure if that counts, since that's a sport that seemingly only exists every four years to a vast majority of the general public. Well, uh, counts. But no, uh, yeah. But, uh.
1: People in Canada and Norway and all Mm -hmm. kinds of places uh, pay attention to curling all all the time.
0: Very much so. And we got another listener email from uh, a Canadian, Ruhi, our Patreon supporter, and a friend of mine who says in episode 1959, you discussed the uniqueness of baseball's box score, recreating the events of the game. And I think there is a comparable scoreboard in, sorry to be that Canadian, curling. There are a couple of ways curling scoreboards can be laid out. And one of them is almost exactly like a box score both teams' ends, which is kind of an innings equivalent, and the number of points scored in each end. The other way is a little more complicated. She writes, I am not as familiar with curling as I am with baseball, but I think it's quite similar in a lot of ways, especially in the team sport with a lot of individual playing time aspect. The skip in curling is like the catcher to me, where they call the game and direct other players' shots, but everyone has to play their own rock. And also, got a response from Raymond Chen, effectively Wild Wiki Keeper, who noted that bowling scoreboards record the results of every single ball, even more thorough than baseball. Along the same lines, listener PJ writes in to say, In golf, the physical scoreboards at tournaments will display the score relative to par for each hole for each golfer. So at the start of a tournament, a player will begin at E for even par and then may progress above, green number or below, red number. And you can see how a round is going for each golfer. This is also at least partially a function of the structure of the sport. But if baseball is detailed with nine frames for nine innings, golf may be even more detailed. Fair enough. Okay, and we also got a response from Scott, who said, in the course of Monday's newly official segment, The Uniqueness of Baseball, you discussed the scoreboard and particularly the score being broken up inning by inning and whether that was different from period by period, quarter by quarter, etc. However, I have two additions that I want to make to this that I'm surprised did not come up in the course of your discussion, the inclusion of hits and errors and the out-of-town scoreboard. Among the big five U.S. sports, baseball scoreboard is certainly unique in not just showing the score, but some small portion of how that score was gotten to in hits and errors. Sometimes hockey scoreboards will show shots on goal, though I don't think that's standardized. But other than that, I can't think of a parallel among sports scoreboards. Along with that, baseball seems unique in having a large out-of-town scoreboard where you can follow all other games in progress to a degree of precision depending on the scoreboard via lit-up bases or number of outs or pitcher's number, score, game start time, etc. I also think that's unique, though it's the case that baseball does have many more simultaneous games than football and more than hockey and basketball. So that's kind of a corollary maybe to there just being more games in the baseball season, which we've talked about, but, but also I, I guess more going on at the same time. I don't really know what the state of out of town scoreboards in every other sport is like, I assume you can see the scores when you're at a, a game for most other sports, yeah. but, but maybe there's not quite as much real estate taken up by that, or there just aren't as many games going on. So yeah, there's uh, something to that, I suppose.
1: Yeah. I will say so again, my, my primary reference point for this is going to be what they do in the NFL, because those are the, the games that I have gone to in person, the most apart from baseball, at least recently. And I think what they will often do is they'll like take a, they'll show what the score is, and then at various points throughout the game, they might pause, like if there's a break, you know, the, there's a quarter break or timeout or whatever, and they might even show like a highlight or two. Mm -hmm. from the out-of-town games and those tend the games they select tend to be the ones that either are the most interesting or have the most direct impact on um the division position of the team the home team you're seeing Mm -hmm. but here's the thing i like about it i have one small beef with the out-of-town scoreboard for baseball do you know pitcher numbers (laughs)
0: <laughs> no not at all
1: <laughs> I know some of them right mm-hmm. I know some and and by that I mean they're uniform numbers
0: yes right.
1: I get why they are there they indicate who the starter is going to be in that um, particular for each team in that particular matchup but I think that most people don't know all of them Mm-hmm. And so we could maybe do something else with that real estate, you know, maybe mm-hmm. there's something else we could include on the out of town scoreboard that would tell us a little bit more, you know, mm-hmm. so that's, that's my one beef, whereas, you know, uh, like a uh, lumen field, mm-hmm. um, you can see like whole place, you know, because they will just show them up right. there which they don't tend to do in baseball as much. You don't see like real highlights from other in-progress mm-hmm. games as often, which yeah. is maybe is a broadcast rates thing, I don't know, but like you're more likely to see I have seen at various points, both when watching the Diamondbacks at home and also the Mariners at home. If there is a team relevant to that city that is Mm -hmm. in some sort of playoff situation, you will see updates from it, which is kind of cool. Like they'll show a highlight, and I'm like, well, show me the other MLB teams. Yeah. your, Your brethren.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, we got an email from a Patreon supporter. Now I only want to triumph who pointed out that in baseball, I think there's an unusual shortage of plays from from that game. As right. it happens relative to other sports, right? I think both yes. because of the layout of a ballpark and yeah. you don't want distracting moving images in the batter's eye. Right? right. And then also, I think it comes down to maybe not wanting to show up the umpires just with the the legacy of, of fans being upset at umpires. And so they tend not to show close Plays uh, yeah. at least on the, the main video board. Now they show it all around the ballpark at various screens and you can hear the audible like cheer or groan when people see the replay, right. especially you might have some ballparks that show the replay, like if there's a replay review, yes. right? But but historically speaking, you wouldn't usually just see like as the game was going on, like a, a disputed call that just happened up on the big board in center or left right, or wherever right. it is. So, so yeah, that's a, a little unusual usual, I suppose. And uh, Tyler, Patreon supporter, said, I can't think of another sport that has the live audience sing a tune about the sport itself partway through every match. (laughs) I imagine it would be quite odd and would even receive pushback from some if hockey, for example, implemented a song about hockey to be sung during the third period. However, it would be stranger, in my opinion, if baseball were to banish this tradition. You obviously, you have a lot of singing and chanting that goes on, right fight songs and so forth right but but that's mostly team oriented yeah, it's not just like here we are at a, at a football game, like right. go football, you know, no. like in the, in the way it's... that like, you know, take me out to the ball game and, and then root, root, root for the home team and all that and the Cracker Jacks and so forth. Like right. it's more just like, we like baseball, uh, you know, having sort of a, a designated song that is just generally about the sport and also affords us a chance to stretch, I suppose is, is uh, somewhat unusual too.
1: yeah. Yeah, it suggests a more sedentary viewing experience, right? Because you get mm-hmm. the opportunity, yeah, to or stretch. a longer one, yeah. Right. I think I think both. Um, yes. I think mm-hmm. they work together to to necessitate the the seventh inning stretch. And then you're right. The other songs I can think of, you know, you know, Eagles fans aren't aren't singing about other people. They're singing about the Eagles. You <laughs> mm-hmm. know, like they're right. pretty particular on, on that mm-hmm. score. Just to think of a team that has a compelling fight song and has been playing lately and you're right that some sports or teams will have songs they sing that don't specifically reference the the team necessarily but are traditions of the team mm-hmm. right like I have a controversial take about sweet Caroline but like sweet Caroline you know which mm-hmm. could you know, we could do other stuff if we wanted to. I'm just offering that as a, an alternative to people. It's a weird song, Ben. The lyrics of that song are weird. <laughs> yeah. It's weird <laughs> that we sing that song, you know, and that and that we have such a Pavlovian response to it. It's just like mm-hmm. kind of embarrassing. But anyway, you know, we all have our little traditions, but you're right that most of them are specific to the team or not generalizable to uh, the whole sport. Mm-hmm. So right. that's that's weird.
0: Yep. And the last one I will share here, this is from Brian, who who noted, not only do different parks have different dimensions, but different ground rules. So what happens if a ball hits the catwalk in Tropicana or gets stuck in the ivy at Wrigley? Also, the umpire can rule on what would have happened, a hypothetical. Would a runner have scored without fan interference? That sort of thing. Not sure if that's unique. It is odd. And lastly, he notes, as Paul O'Neill taught us, you can throw the ball or impact the ball, I suppose, with any part of your body or even toss your glove, although there are some penalties associated with glove tossing. In basketball, you can't kick the ball. In football, you can, but kicking or throwing cannot be interchanged. You can't throw a pass with your foot. You can't kick a pass, I guess. You can't throw a field goal with your hands through the uprights. In soccer, you can't use your hands, etc. Right. But in baseball, you can get the ball to the base with any part of your body if you can mm-hmm. pull it off right <laughs> You can kick it as Paul O'Neill did or whatever, and it doesn 't matter like there aren 't certain parts of your body that you can 't use to touch a ball, and there aren 't like uh, certain maneuvers like i guess uh, if if a pitcher tried to kick a ball you, you couldn 't do that right a pitcher 's got to throw the ball with uh, with a hand I would think I but, think that uh, <laughs> I think that 's in
1: the the rules. Yes,
0: Yeah. So so that's uh, there's. It's not anything goes. It's not totally open season on on balls and body parts here. There are some limits, but at least when you're in the field, anything goes to a greater extent, maybe than some other sports. <laughs> that's
1: that's
0: anything goes, Ben. Yeah. Of course, in hockey, I mean, there are certain permissible like deflections off parts of your sure. body. That, I and mean, that's, you know, you can't maybe direct it like you can't throw the puck into the goal. But if if uh, if it's if it hits you, it bounces off of you, then, then that's kosher. So I don't know. I don't know if this is, uh, rises to the level of uniqueness, but certain aspects of it are odd. Yeah.
1: It's a particular strange little pursuit. And mm-hmm. its traditions and rules have... Unfurled over time in a way that does not suggest A master plan and so it is uh, It has resulted in a little bit of weirdness And uh, you know I think we like it like that
0: Yes we do alright so let's Take a quick break and we'll be back with Jay Jaffe to talk about the Hall of Fame voting And then we will finish with An in-person past blast
2: on
1: the threshold
3: I don't want to wait no more I've seen without press
0: All right. Well, the dust has settled on the Hall of Fame results. The ballots have been tallied and released. And so who better to dissect what went down than Fangraph's senior writer, Cooperstown correspondent, and Cooperstown casebook author Jay Jaffe, who is always much in demand around this time of year. Jay, thanks for coming on.
2: Hey, Ben, good to be here.
0: So we thought that we might be talking about a shutout today. It looked like that right up until the final few moments, really. But we do have a new Hall of Famer to discuss, Scott Rowland. And I think maybe people who don't pay that close attention to the process and maybe still tend to look at things in terms of old school stats were sort of taken by surprise when they realized, oh, Scott Rowland is a Hall of Famer all of a sudden. Okay. I don't think it would be a surprise uh, to anyone who listens to this show or that we need to really make the case for Roland at this point, although, of course, you can go through his bona fides again for anyone who's not fully convinced. But what strikes me is just the trajectory here that he took, because I subscribed to the Baseball Reference newsletter, and they had a little breakdown of Roland's qualifications. So by war better than 65.6% of Hall of Famers by Jaws, better than 47.1% of Hall of Famers at third base, But then, by black ink, better than 0.0% of Hall of Famers. He has zero black ink, never really led the league in anything. Gray ink, better than 1.2% of Hall of Famers. The Bill James Hall of Fame Monitor, better than 26.8% of Hall of Famers. So, looking at things, historically speaking, it definitely marks a change that he got in. And also, even relative to just a few years ago, right, where he started with the 10.2% support So he's the lowest starting support of of anyone who's gotten in under the modern voting system. And it only took him six years. So coming into this cycle, it seemed clear that he would get in, if not this year, then next year or sometime soon. But it was far from assured as of fairly recently.
2: Yeah. Yes. My answer to that question is yes. (laughs) Um, No. Look, I, I you know, I, in, in spending uh, most of yesterday preparing for the announcement, I, you know, I pre-wrote several paragraphs about the shutout and uh, recompiled a table that I had built two years ago without remembering uh, on, you know, the past shutouts and who, you know, who got in and and, uh, how many guys got 50% or more. I, you know, I, I was laboring towards that. And then it was around maybe like four o'clock where the votes kept trickling in for him uh, in the tracker and the suspense was building and, Started to be like, oh, hey, maybe there's a chance here. So there was legitimate suspense. And I mean, for anybody who thinks that the tracker. The publication uh, of of ballots prior to the announcement has decreased the suspense going into the election announcement. I will offer this as a fine counterexample, as well as the uh, uh, the recent ten year elections, uh, year ten elections of Larry Walker, Edgar Martinez, and and and, and Tim Raines. But you're right. It, you know this did seem a surprise, given that Roland debuted with ten point two percent, which again, as you said, set a record. But it's worth remembering that that ten point two percent. Was suppressed, uh, was a suppressed share because of just how crowded the ballot was. Mm -hmm. When Roland debuted, there were 10 candidates who, uh, met or exceeded the JAWS standards at their position. This year, that number was four, including Roland himself. When he debuted, there were 13, I believe, that had a JAWS of 50 or higher, uh, or 40 or higher for catchers. Uh, now that number, this year, that number was seven. It was not unreasonable to see him as possibly not one of the ten best candidates in 2018 when he first came on the ballot, and certainly not one who had the most urgent claim on a spot. When you think about Martinez building towards uh, towards his election, he was he would be elected the next year. Walker two years later. Those guys at their end of their candidacy. All that really mattered at that point was that he survived and advanced. You know, and and. The reality with, with these crowd of voters had to perform some, some kind of triage and he just ended up on the outside for some, but he got enough to stick around. So I don't think we should, we necessarily have, you know, should, should point to that 10% as just a face value judgment that, you know, that everybody felt he was not a you know, that 90% felt that he was not a Hall of Famer. It was that, you know, 90% felt that he did not have the best case for the Hall of Fame on that, that year's ballot.
1: And there are other guys who started with lower totals who didn't make it in on this year's ballot, but are inching toward election. Can you talk about a few of the guys who we might expect to see taking the stage next summer?
2: Sure. Well, uh, Todd Helton uh, got 16.5% on his first ballot in 2019, and he's now in better shape going into his sixth year on the ballot with 72 point something percent, You know, about 10 points ahead of where Roland was coming into this year. Andrew Jones only had 7.3% in his debut. He's at 58% this year, uh, his sixth year on the ballot. He debuted the same year as Roland. Uh, He's got a legitimate shot at being elected by the writers, given that he's got four more years of eligibility. You know, both of those guys stand out. And it's just a reminder that because of these advanced stats, you know, these fates that we once thought were cast in stone in terms of where a guy debuts and, 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 uh, how he projects thereafter are, are much more malleable. And to me, it, 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 it at least somewhat mirrors what we're seeing on the playing field and that, you know, guys who come up and they're not great hitters, don't have a lot of power, can rework their swings and, so, you know, the, the Justin Turner path to success or Chris Taylor path to success or whatever, J.D. Martinez path to success or you know, learn a new pitch or adjust their spin, and suddenly these guys are you know star caliber. It's we're, we live in a in a in a wonderful age where you know the fates of players are just much more malleable, uh, both on you know on the field and 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 in our uh, uh, post career evaluations of them, I guess.
1: One thing that I found interesting, you know, we've talked about how we had this you know, big bulk of guys who were going to get in, you know, it clearly impacted Roland's trajectory because there was all of this ballot crowding. This year, the ballot thinned out, right? We lost some of the guys who had been the most controversial. I know that you were so sad to not have to write a BBWA profile of Barry Bonds Uh. and Roger (laughs) Clemens, although the committees didn't let you get away from it entirely. But I found it interesting that, you know, with this new room to be had, we still saw you know the the average number of votes on ballots contracts still a bit. What do you make of the sort of state of the electorate right now?
2: It's a, it's a shrinking electorate. There's no doubt about that. You know the long term effects of uh, the contraction in sports media, the you know so called pivot to video, the decline of several outlets that. You know, maybe a few years ago, we would have viewed, you know, from from Fangraphs, Vantage, we would have viewed as competitors, at you know, or you know, or or fellow travelers. Uh, Those places are drying up. It's not there's not that many places where it's easy to sustain the ten year career necessary to get the ballot. I mean, you know, I joined the BBWA for in, in 2011, you know, and stuck around for 10 years. There were people who. Who joined it a year or two after, whom I certainly thought would would, would have the vote by now. Um, and, you know, for for whatever reasons, there was a lot of attrition within that group. And that is surprising. And, you know, along with uh, uh, just the ways that media has developed, it, it's just, it, it's a smaller electorate. Part of it was the also the sunsetting of uh, uh, long-retired voters, uh, which the Hall decided to do in 2015, which lopped something like 120 voters off Within two years, and and has continued to whittle the uh whittle the electorate. But I think the the other side of this is that you know we did see four candidates post double digit gains, led by Todd Helton with about twenty points up. And the real driver of the small number of names per ballot uh, below six was the uh, relatively meek crop of first year candidates. 12 of the 14 did not get the 5%, and I believe uh, seven of them didn't get a single vote, you know, and, and, and only, only five of them even got token votes, uh, single token vote. So, you know, they were not serious candidates, and it was a small ballot to begin with. So, you know, in some ways, that's, that's maybe just a bit of a fluke. Next year, we've got uh, three very strong first-year candidates coming on, including an, an obvious first-year uh, honoree and Adrian Beltre, plus Joe Maurer. Plus Chase Utley, so I think we're going to see you know a return to uh, what we saw a few years ago in terms of ballot space being at a premium, but it is still going to be in the hands of a of a smaller electorate.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned the four guys who increased uh, Helton, Wagner, Jones, and Sheffield all went up by more than 15 percentage points, which, as Jason Stark noted in, in his column, never in any previous election had more than two players each jump by at least 15 percentage points after entering that election with a floor as high as this group. So that was unprecedented. And you might have thought that Roland would climb even more with the, the backlog of, of Bonds and Clemens and Schilling, et cetera, being stripped from the ballot. But he had already kind of maxed out his support, it seems like, so he only had so much further to go. There was some analysis in Stark's column by Jason Sardell who's one of the best projectors of the election results that showed that basically the people who were voting for those guys who were no longer eligible were already voting for Roland for the most part, whereas these new spots that opened up went to these players who previously had not gotten that support. So now Helton and Wagner certainly at least are, are close enough where it would be unprecedented if they didn't get in within the next year or two, right? Although, as you said, there are better candidates coming along next year who could conceivably make things a bit more crowded, Adrian Beltre and and Joe Maurer and Chase Utley, etc.
2: Yeah, we've got a bit of a logjam on our hands here because you know we we have the time pressure of Wagner, who'll be going into his ninth year. Sheffield at fifty-five percent going into his tenth year, he needs about the equivalent of what Larry Walker got in his tenth year. Walker was at fifty-four point six percent. So there's some urgency there. There's obviously the first the first year guys. You know, coming on, uh, it's going to be a complicated election, and and it's tough to to figure out exactly which which way this is going to go. But yes, you'd figure Todd Helton is pretty much a gimme putt away from election. Bill Wagner does have a pretty good shot, but you know there may be an upper bound to the relievers' uh, support uh, that doesn't exist for uh, a more well-rounded candidate. You know, one thing about Roland uh, That strikes me. And maybe this was why Jason Sardell's model, which had been the best for three years running and may still prove to be the most accurate for this year as well, missed on Roland, is because it was such a comparatively simple candidacy. Mm. There's no PED smoke. (laughs) I mean, it was just about baseball. There was no baggage. You know, the worst thing you could say about him is, oh, he got hurt a lot and finished his career in. Uh, at age thirty-seven, and oh yeah, Phillies fans have the red ass uh, about him <laughs> because he didn't sign a hundred ten million dollar extension. And Dallas Green and Larry Boa both put him on blast, which kind of poisoned the well. Um, the city of brotherly hate. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Dan, uh, Dan Zaborski made a made a funny joke about the possibility that if Roland had a Phillies cap, that Phillies fans would be calling the hall to. Have it evicted, uh, so you know there were and like in my feed there was a there were there was at least one Phillies fan who was irate. So you know I, it's just pretty interesting the way the way this all unfolded. And oh man, I was I thought there was going to be a shutout though, and and I was so relieved and elated that Roland got in because he's somebody I've, I've championed, and and I think I might have killed the house plant. I yelled so loud when it came in.
1: I guess we should talk a little bit more about one guy on the ballot who does have some baggage now and late baggage in his career you know it's hard to tell after just one election cycle what what we might expect but if you were trying to cast about in the tea leaves what do you think Carlos Beltran's long-term odds are of getting into the hall
2: that's funny. You should mention that. I'm writing up my, my candidate by candidate breakdown. And what I came up with here is, is it is tough to tell because we're, we are in uncharted territory. But two things stand out. One, everybody who's debuted with 41.7% or more in their first year has been elected eventually. And the 41.7% guy is Jeff Bagwell. Uh, And he did it within a 10-year eligibility window. He needed seven years in part because he had publicly admitted to using uh, androstenedione, the steroid precursor, back before it was banned. You know, there were voters who creatively tried to say there are rumors about him when, you know, the answer was hiding in plain sight. Uh, Same with Piazza you know and uh, guys kind of <laughs> kind of embarrassed some some voters kind of embarrassed themselves by not doing their homework but you know that was a controversy that was that was surmountable and i do think that beltran you know the science stealing controversy is probably surmountable as well you know there are reasons to be upset that he was the only player identified for example and that while the two guys who the two managers who were actually suspended got jobs within a year uh or, or immediately after being uh, reinstated uh, Beltran has not, um, but you know he's that he's already you know paid his paid his uh, or done you know paid his dues done his done, done his time. When I when I uh, game this out, I think year six or year seven is the most likely uh, point for him because there are you know some crowded ballots coming up here. It will take a little while to to uh, untangle this jam that that we've got here you know, I don't necessarily see, you know, as much as Joe Maurer to me strikes me as a guy who should go in on the first ballot, if you've got Todd Helton and Adrian Beltran going in, there's not always room at the top for a third guy, especially if there's other guys pulling in that direction, including Wagner, including Sheffield, including Jones. So I think Beltran's going to have to wait for the traffic to clear. And uh, last year when I did my five-year outlook, I had Beltran going in 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 his uh, sixth year, but that was based on him getting My guess was 57% in his first year, and he undershot that by about 10 points. So it's going to take a little bit longer.
0: Yeah, although I think we can infer something from him getting 46.5% support in his first year. I mean, that's already higher than the likes of A-Rod and Manny Ramirez are getting, and and those guys are not gaining at all. They're just basically frozen in the mid-30s. So that seems to send a signal that voters are distinguishing between types of cheating and that... It's a, a harder hit against your legacy, apparently, if you are a steroid guy, if you got suspended, especially for taking PEDs, than if you were a sign stealer, even a reported architect of the sign stealing scheme. It, it seems like, I don't know whether this will be a one year kind of like, let's punish him and then, you know, we'll, we'll give him next time we'll give him a vote or whether this will linger. But, but either way, it seems like people are drawing a distinction between types of cheating here, which is interesting.
2: Yeah, I you know, and I think I think that's good. I mean, you know, I've I've said this throughout my time doing the virtual and actual ballots. Is you know, even when you're just looking at the PED guys, there are nuances there that deserve to be explored. You know, some guys tested positive and were suspended. Others had uh, infractions that dated to you know the Wild West era before testing and penalties were in place. And you've got say a Jeff Bagwell using something that was actually legal at the time, or Andy Pettit using HGH, which has obvious medical uses. There are It's not often you get two guys whose PED-related cases are exactly alike, and so it shouldn't be surprising that when we get uh, other infractions and violations, that we have to, you know, weigh them against each other, compare them, and and uh, try to figure out how the right hand way to handle it is. One thing I thought about when I was going into this, both with regards to uh, the general electorate's strategy and to my own, was uh, the example of Roberto Alomar. Now, leaving aside all the stuff we've learned about Roberto Alomar in the last few years that has resulted in him basically being declared persona non grata within the game, Alomar had the highest second year percentage of any pla- of any candidate to come along until uh, until Vlad Guerrero. Um, and that was because he, voters, a lot of voters, penalized him in his first year of eligibility for the uh, incident where he spat on umpire John Hirschbeck. But that was a one-year penalty that that uh, um, you know they deprived him of first ballot entry in case that meant something extra to him. But his plaque is on the wall there. I suspect that some number of uh, uh, voters viewed uh, what Beltran did in in a similar light. I know I thought of going that route, I've, but I'm somebody who's never really, you know, who's, who's always thought that the first ballot uh, distinction is, is kind of a red herring and, and you don't get a gold star on your plaque for first ballot entry. You're still a Hall of Famer, whether it's year one or year 10. I felt like doing that, withholding that first year vote was a bit performative for my tastes. And so I opted to include him, uh, even though what he did doesn't entirely sit well with me either.
1: Among the guys who went one and done on this ballot I know that you you included some but were there any who you were particularly disappointed to see fade after just one year?
2: Not really. I mean, I you know, look, <laughs> I have look, I have in having the the runway to do these expanded profiles at Fangraphs now. I mean, I used to lump three or four of these guys together uh at SI in my first few years at Fangraphs and now I'm going 2,000, 3,000 words on Guys who have literally no chance of even getting a vote have developed great affection for the careers of Bronson Arroyo, Matt Cain, R.A. Dickey uh, over the, you know, in this process. I would love to talk about Matt Cain and R.A. Dickey for another year, just to just to cite, cite two of them, you know, Cain. Has a special spot in our developing understanding of, of pitching statistics and particularly the way that we calculate uh, pitcher war at fan graphs. Yeah. So, you know, that's uh, that's that's kind of neat. R.A. Dickey uh, is the only award winner among the 12 first uh, one and done guys who fell off the ballot. Uh, he won the Cy Young, of course. He also stands as the last great knuckleballer and the last knuckleballer to have more than a cameo appearance in the major leagues right now. Um, we've only had. Uh, I think, two uh, actual pitchers totaling three outings, uh, Ryan Fireband and, and Mickey Janice to even pitch in the majors since since Dickey went away. And I think there's, you know, there's the, the part of me that grew up uh, marveling at Phil Necro and reading about reading Jim Bouton in Ball Four and, you know, seeing Tom Candiotti and Tim Wakefield and, and uh, Joe Necro and, and, you know, some other guys enjoy long careers. It really bums me out the idea that the knuckleball may be extinct at the major league level. So, you know, the more we talk about R.A. Dickey and how great R.A. Dickey's career turnaround was, I think the better. So I'm kind of sad to see those two go in particular.
0: Yeah. One nice thing about the fact that the electorate has has kind of come to value players more the way that our modern metrics uh, would suggest is that we don't really see very deserving guys go one and done, you know, like Bobby Gritch or Lou Whitaker or Kenny Lofton, those types, you know, Right, yeah. yeah. Where you know, if they had stuck around, or if they were to be on the ballot now, it would be a very different story. So you see the Rollins and the Wagners and the Joneses and the Heltons, et cetera. You know, start at a low level, and then they have the ability to keep climbing. Whereas uh, those other very deserving, strong candidates were deprived of the chance to keep climbing. And maybe in their era, they wouldn't have had the chance to keep climbing anyway. But now, when a a guy gets knocked off the ballot in the first year, it's it's generally like, well, you had an nice career but you know you weren't right. you weren't going to get it so that's okay. Uh one guy who is no longer on the ballot now is Jeff Kent and he also made a a little late ballot run here on his last year of eligibility, and and he made a nice climb, but didn't end up anywhere close to where he would have had to be to get in. He was at 46.5, which uh, actually tied Carlos Beltran in his first year, right? So I think a lot of people are kind of fitting Kent for the era committee plaque in in the Baines and McGriff tradition. So are you expecting that? And and how do you feel about this idea that uh, players will get knocked off the the BBWA ballot? it have their 10 years and and not get close and then just be shoe-ins to this uh, very s- small group backdoor uh, back door into the hall.
2: Yeah, I look, we've seen it before. We saw you know, we saw it with Alan Trammell. we saw it with Fred McGriff. I don't think Jeff Kent is the worst candidate to go that route. I if you gave me a choice between Jeff Kent and Fred McGriff, I would choose Jeff Kent you know, in terms of, you know, in terms of Hall Fitness. The defensive metrics do not smile upon him that, you know, and, and I said this 10 times uh, going back to the, his first appearance on the ballot in 2014. My own system has surprised me here because Jeff Kent ranks so low. Um, you know, you peel back the layers of the onion. It's, it's not only the defensive metrics, but because his offense really wasn't that special. It was special for a middle infielder, but it's still, you know, some people would have you believe that it was just, you know, he was one of the league's best hitters. He was not, you know, 356 career on base percentage, um, the 500 slugging percentage. I mean, those like in, in the height of, of, uh, you know, a very offense heavy era that he did that and that he just did not have very many big seasons in terms of his overall value. But yeah, I mean, the hundred RBI stuff, the most home runs is his second baseman. Those are credentials that are going to pop in front of the uh, Hall of Famers on the era committee, I think. And, you know, I don't I don't think... it also, you know, it doesn't hurt that he's going to be judged by a panel that's 50% players and 25% media, if that, compared to one that's 100% media. Now, I think it's worth saying that I don't think a lot of media actually penalized him for his personality. You did not hear writers complaining about Jeff Kent avoiding accountability and that's what writers what writers want is a guy who will stand at his locker through thick and thin and uh answer their questions you don't have to exchange christmas cards you know with him or, or whatever it's just is this guy there to help me with you know to to help me uh do my job and that's that's all they're asking and i think Jeff Kent fit that description so i don't think that uh you know his uh gruff nature if you will uh cost him Significant support. I just think he hit the ballot at the wrong time. The 2014 ballot was the most stacked one in modern history, with I think it's 17 guys with a 50 jaws or, or higher, uh, or 40 if you're, if you're a catcher and 14 who met met or exceeded their position standards. That's just mind boggling.
1: We've come through a period where we had a lot of acrimony around the candidates on the ballot on transparency. I'm curious. What are some things that you would like to see either the BBWA do or the Hall of Fame do to improve this process and make it clearer to the fans who are engaging with it and perhaps smoother for the writers who are being asked to cast ballots?
2: Well, we had a report yesterday from Ryan Thibodeau uh, that one writer's ballot got lost in the mail. I don't think (laughs) I've ever seen that before, but man, that does not give you great confidence in (laughs) what has already been... uh, uh, viewed as an antiquated system particularly by those outside it who are like wait you're still doing this on paper <laughs> um, I, I do think I, I do think this is a discussion worth having uh within the BBWAA about uh about going to a secure electronic voting system i think it can be done and i i don't think there's a reason not to do it, it you know it shouldn't be Glaringly expensive when you're talking about the cost of postage uh, for you know for um, for all that goes on as well.
0: But how are you going to get the solemn Tom Verducci video of checking off the boxes and, <laughs> oh, and putting Christ. it in the envelope and <laughs> I, <laughs> weightily I, mailing uh,
2: it? <laughs> I, I could I didn't turn on. I didn't turn on MLB Network yesterday until five five forty five because I just knew that I was going to be subjected to way too much. I didn't turn <laughs> the sound off until until I saw. Uh, Josh Rawicz on screen. it's just I, I, I have my appetite for those kinds kinds of uh, uh, <laughs> featurettes, if you will, right. uh, is at an all time low. <laughs> you know, I think I think that's to me that's the electronic voting is something I think should be considered. I know you have talked about this, Ben, about you know wanting the Hall to clarify its character clause stance and whatever and how it pertains yeah. to Peds. I don't see that happening. Mm-hmm. I think the Hall loves to have its cake and eat it too, is content with the fact that this ambiguity has broken in their favor by keeping Bonds and Clemens and Arod and Manny on the outside and setting a good example for the children. You know, I, maybe it would be easier if we had some guidance uh, from them when it came to not only the PEDs, but also to the unfortunately uh, growing number of players who have been uh, accused of, of domestic violence, but as the great Ray Ratto often says, this ain't a church. You know, when judging ballplayers, we've got countless examples of bad behavior already in the hall. And that doesn't mean we have to endorse every example that comes along. But I don't see, just from a pragmatic standpoint, I don't see there being like a, a stronger purity test being put into place or the hall um, staking out a position that hems it in. Rather than hides behind ambiguity, I mean the hall is already content to maintain anonymous voting. You know, which is to say voting that you know where the where a, a, a voter's ballot is not eventually published. Um, the BBWA asked for the second time in in, in the last decade uh, to make uh, publishing uh, ballot mandatory. Overwhelmingly, something like you know eighty eight percent of the BBWA at the winter meetings approved that. I don't see that changing though, because I think as long as the current leadership is in place, which means Jane Forbes Clark as the uh, chairwoman and CEO, I think we're you know we're going to see the Hall of Fame maintain these positions, and as a private institution, that's their right, and we can either play ball or ignore it.
0: Yeah. Or not vote, I guess, which is what I've chosen to do. But yes, I, I would not mind if they just removed the character clause. Although on the, the character clause uh, beat, it, it does sort of surprise me that you have, at the same time, Vizquel, Omar Vizquel is plummeting and Andrew Jones is rocketing up, even though yeah. there are you know domestic well, violence uh, allegations. Are, you know. are,
2: okay. I would point to two things. Um, mm-hmm. One, for uh, Vizquel was hit with these allegations yeah, the timing mid candidacy. Whereas yeah. Jones, this happened at the end of his career. We've never seen it. we've never seen it happen mid candidacy. And two, the sexual harassment uh, mm-hmm. of right. the of the Bat Boy yeah. is without precedent. I mean that like that's a double whammy, um, yeah. and it does have a baseball connection. And it probably, especially given that we know that there was an out of court settlement regarding this you know which is confidential in nature but it seems entirely likely if not probable that Vizquel would be subject to major league baseball's discipline process before he could ever take another job within organized baseball. Yeah. So you're 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 you know you're again talking you're talking about a guy who's going to have the black mark of a suspension against him, you know, and that's that's I think a tough a tough thing to going to be a tough thing to overcome if that does come you know if that does play out. So that's that's different and and, and you know, Vizquel's candidacy, I think to some extent, did depend on some soft factors in terms of, you know, especially this, mm. this reputation as such a good guy, mm. um, which, as we know, is often a facade. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things, you know, if those allegations had come out a few years later, he might have been in by that point, which is, I mean, that's, that kind of thing has happened, which is an argument for maybe not making that a factor because we just never know. And sometimes we think things about people and then we learn other things. But Yeah. To be clear, I think uh, Jones is far more deserving as a a player. I never saw Viscal as a Hall of Famer even before that stuff surfaced, but but a lot of people did and it seemed like he was well on his way. So last thing, because I I know you got to go, you've got other demands on your time today, but <laughs> are there any uh, lingering arguments or rationales that you see that still kind of grind your gears, even though I-, I think on the whole voting is more logical maybe than it used to be? There are a couple that I saw that are not new, but but that kind of stood out to me. Rob Parker, to to pick on one person, he had a, a Sheffield only ballot, and look, there were a lot of one player only ballots, and and some stranger than Sheffield only, but but his rationale was if there's a debate about your career, you aren't a Hall of Famer hashtag pretty simple, <laughs> which uh, seems strange to me because there's debate about almost every career. I mean, no one yes. is unanimous, but, but also what sort of standard is that? I mean, a debate is a fun part of the process. That's okay. But another one, Ron Cook, who submitted a blank ballot for, I think, the third year in the row, his rationale was uh, a player is either a Hall of Famer from the start or he isn't, right? You know, And yeah. he's basically saying we should be locked on to whatever their starting percentage was, which is very silly because, A, we can change Our minds, for one thing, that's okay, that's encouraged, I would say. Even though a player may not improve his candidacy after he retires, we might learn things or realize things, we get educated about those players. Why should we be locked into what we first thought? Plus, as you said, you know, sometimes you vote strategically. So, So, those are a couple of the ones that stood out to me. And sometimes another one that bugs me is he was never the best player during his era or even the best player at his position. You know, like you could say, Oh, Scott Rowland, like, Dipper Jones was the, the better, better player at his position in his league, their, his whole career. So why would you put Scott Rowland? in But I, I always hate that argument because sometimes there are just multiple Hall of Fame players at a certain position at the same time. So why penalize someone who, yeah. who meets the standard?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. We could probably do another half hour on <laughs> right, this. <yeah>. Um, <laughs> I, I do think that, you know, the, the blank ballots will always annoy me. Um, there were eight this year. There were 14 last year, which was the record. Yeah. You know, I, I I do get that there are that voters do view this as a protest, and I suppose that uh, you know that's their right. I do think that uh, it still looks fairly ridiculous when you're standing there and saying there's no worthy there's no one worthy of the Hall of Fame by my high standards. It just means you're too lazy to do the homework, frankly, and you know you just look like an old man firing blanks. So, um, <laughs> second, I think if you're if, if you're submitting a one man ballot. I don't care who that one is. If you're citing a process, your process that leads you to only one candidate is almost certainly an extremely flawed one, laughably so. I don't know. how. Look, I voted for Gary Sheffield for each of the last three years. I probably have a lot more emotion towards Gary Sheffield in terms of my personal pantheon as, as a fan, even given his various controversies. There is not a you know, once that I've looked at that ballot and would say that Gary Sheffield is the most deserving player of a Hall of Fame on here. Um, no, I, I, I don't <laughs> see I, I, I don't see how you. I don't see what path you take to that conclusion. It just it is it, it is beyond me. You know, I just I think of some of the ridiculous ballots we've you know we've we've seen over the years, and uh, that that one strikes me. But uh, especially just the condescending nature of the hashtag and and, right. <laughs> and, and, and the no debate. Well, you know, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure even Rob Parker has debated the credentials of these guys at some point. Um, and I do think that you know one of the one of the good things about about all of this process, and it's certainly one I've been drawn into more so as I've you know been within the BBWA. And this really was underscored when I went back to the winter meetings for the first time uh, this year after, you know, two missed years due to the pandemic, uh, is that voters actually do talk to each other about these guys. We learn things from each other. You know, you might get a tip that, hey, this guy is not the upstanding character uh, we thought he was. You might also, on the other hand, uh, convince somebody that... Uh, you know, you really ought to take a look at those defensive metrics because they do. You know, I I have talked to to a few voters. I changed a few minds uh, this winter, and I had my mind changed a bit too. I was very I went into the winter meetings very malleable about uh, how I felt about Carlos Beltran, and asked uh, at least half a dozen voters. Uh, what their thoughts were, and kind of hashed out a revised position for myself that that factored into what I ended up writing. So I, I think it's a good thing that we're open to open to more discussion and more evidence. I uh, I'm writing this in my in my uh, candidate by candidate profile right now. Is I review my process for these guys every year. I'm going to take another look at Mark Burley and Andy Pettit, whom I've not voted for any time yet, even after making a significant change to to uh, starting pitcher jaws but i'll I'll look again and i will listen to the arguments of the people that i respect that are making them on on those Mm -hmm. two pitchers perhaps because we do have a dearth of starting pitchers and so if i'm open if you know if i'm pounding the table saying please let me you know please listen to me so i can change your mind i'm willing to have my mind changed too so Mm -hmm. i think that's the responsibility we have as voters
3: yeah.
0: And I think some of the, the upcoming arguments will be fun, more fun than some of the arguments that we've been having over the past several years. Because, you know, Adrian Beltrade, there shouldn't really be an argument. Everyone will be happy to see him on the ballot and be able to vote for him. But some of the holdovers and then and guys like uh, Maurer and Utley, you know, I, I think certainly Maurer should be in. And I wrote about that when he retired just how important it is to look at the different standards for catchers. But Really, like those are the kinds of guys where it's, it's fun to have Hall of Fame debates. Sure. Or Scott Rowland, too, you know, where there's no obvious known baggage and it's about what they did on the field and what they accomplished in their career. And people can reasonably disagree. And then there can be kind of a back and forth and an education that that goes on of people who learn to look at the game in different ways. So I think that is a perk of the process. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hopefully more of that in the future. Agreed. So we've got to release Jay so that he can go on to his next interview about the Hall of Fame. But you can read all his write-ups at Fangraphs. So we will link to them on the show page. You can find him on Twitter at j underscore Jaffe. And, of course, in the Cooperstown casebook. Thank you, as always, Jay.
2: All right. Sure thing, guys and gals. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, it is time for the Pass Blast, and I do have a little follow-up before we get to the new Pass Blast. Meg, we have talked a couple of times recently about a hypothetical where kids face big leaguers mm-hmm. on the field and, and how that would go and how many fielders of various ages you would have to have in order to keep the competition close, and we discussed how you would position them and how many you would need and whether there is any number that would be sufficient given the the fear element. and. Other Other considerations. Well, I got an email from original past blaster Richard Hirschberger, subject line where to put extra fielders. So this discussion sparked something in him. He said, your recent conversations about big leaguers versus countless youth and the danger of the kids just getting in each other's way was not always entirely hypothetical. In the early days of baseball, informal games might include extra players, either for competitive balance or simply because they showed up and wanted to play. In 1872, the Knickerbockers' first nine defeated a field of 15 players because the 15 fielders interfered with each other. Henry Chadwick gave some advice on where to place various numbers of fielders. So here's the quote from Chadwick. When a field party exceeds the regular number of 9, the following rules should be observed in placing the field. When 10 men play, of course, the 10th man goes to right short. When 11 play, then the extra man is placed between 2nd base and center field, the latter player being sent out further for long balls when 12 men take the field then the two extra men take positions in the outfield so as to capture short high balls beyond the reach of the infield and not far enough out for the outfielders in such a case two of the three outfielders are sent out further to catch long high fly balls When the field exceeds 12, then the extra men are placed on foul ball ground, back of first and third base. Unless an arrangement like this is made, the players are only in each other's way. So that's from the New York Sunday Mercury, May 19th, 1872. So this was uh, contemplated. So there are some free tips from Henry Chadwick to any teams of 15-year-olds that happen to be... <laughs> playing big leaguers anytime soon <laughs> i don't think uh, actual big leaguers can avail themselves of these instructions though because we do have some limits on how many fielders you can have and also more and more strictly where they can stand so that kind of that limits you a little bit but good to know that people were thinking of this uh, 150 plus years ago
1: We live in a society, et cetera, et cetera.
0: (laughs) Yeah. We also, we got an email from Joseph, a Patreon supporter, who pointed out, what if you covered the entire field of play with thousands of prone (laughs) five-year-olds? if you make the ground completely inaccessible to the ball it would eventually come to rest on top of a kid's body which would presumably be an out right i mean i guess everything would be a catch at that point because you would just have a sea of five-year-olds and the ball would come to rest on one of them and then another one could pick the ball up and it would be an out so problem solved (laughs)
1: Okay, but okay, but Ben, here's the thing. If the entire field is literally covered with five year olds, how does that interact with potential interference of the runner? To first base, right? Because if yeah. they're well, in the, we gotta leave
0: the baselines clear, I guess. Oh sure. <laughs> but...
1: Now we're we're keeping it like normal baseball. Okay. Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, there are limits. <laughs> I'm saying, but You'd
1: end up spiking a kid, it would be terrible.
0: I know. Well, hopefully they would have some sort of protective equipment or something, because otherwise the ones right in front of the plate would just get drilled. It would right. be like yeah, your, be reasonable the silly position in cricket that we have discussed in the past. Yeah. So yeah, mm. don't want anyone to get hurt, but that is the big problem about having. <laughs> Big Leaker space five-year-olds or 15-year-olds for that matter. Okay. Yeah. So that was a follow-up, and, and I wanted to get Richard involved here because we're having another changing of the guard in the oh. Pass Blast segment today. So Richard Hirschberger originated this segment. He took us from its introduction in 1856 to 1901 through 1901. So he took us up to a new era, the American League coming in. And then Jacob Pomeranke, of course, uh, picked up the mantle from Richard, and he has now taken us to the verge of a new era the expansion era and so he is here as Richard was for his final pass blast to deliver it in person Jacob is here to do the same and I've said this so many times but uh, the pass blast today comes to you from 1960 and this is episode 1960 and it also comes to you from Jacob Pomeranke Sabres Director of Editorial Content and Chair of the Black Sox Candle Research Committee and I guess you could have let you say that for yourself because you are here Hello,
3: Jacob. Well, thanks for the introduction, Ben.
0: Yeah. Well, we thank you for taking us this far, and uh, we have one more pass blast to go. So lay it on us, uh, the pass blast for 1960.
3: Okay. So 1960, the title is Expansion Plans. Bill Mazeroski's home run to win the 1960 World Series was not even the biggest baseball story of the week that October. Five days after Maz's historic home run in Pittsburgh, the National League announced its long-awaited expansion plans. They approved the addition of two brand-new teams in New York and Houston for the 1962 season. Meanwhile, American League owners were busy making their own plans for expansion in 1962, but they were outraged that the NL had moved ahead without telling them first. So one week after the NL owners' meeting, AO owners voted to move everything up to opening day in 1961 instead. The Washington Senators would move to Minnesota to become the Twins, and then expansion teams would begin play in Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles. The lack of trust between the two leagues hovered over everything, as Shirley Povich of the Washington Post wrote on November 2, 1960, quote, the AL club owners made no secret they were plenty sore at the National League for what they considered a double cross. The National and American Leagues were supposed to act in concert on expansion, said Yankees co-owner Dell Webb, and they didn't. Webb said, they pulled a fast one on us before the World Series and held a hurry-up meeting to add New York and Houston. I understand they got together and decided on this while riding on a plane to Pittsburgh for the World Series. Webb's special pleasure is that the American League is invading Los Angeles to make a two-team city out of what had been the private preserve of the Dodgers' Walter O'Malley. The AL had been moaning low at the growing prospect that it was becoming the Bush League. Its own failure to go to California when the Dodgers and Giants moved three years ago was recognized as ghastly negligence. With the NL taking up in New York, it was threatening to be the only coast-to-coast league, so the AL made up a lot of ground. For once, Povich wrote, the American League was being the boldest, and now the National League would have to catch up. William Shea, who led the charge to bring the expansion Mets to New York in 1962, called the AL's quick expansion, quote, one of the lowest blows below the belt in the history of the sport. The two leagues did get together at the winter meetings in December to hash out all the details, but by then the damage was done. The American League was committed to fielding two new teams in 1961, despite having, in the words of author Andy McHugh, no general managers no managers no players and no ticket sales departments for either team yet (laughs) opening day was less than six months away good luck
0: Excellent. I couldn't have read it better myself. Maybe we should have had you read these things all along. You've got you've got like a little a touch of of Nick Offerman vocal quality. I would say. I don't know whether anyone has ever made that comp before, but
3: I will accept that as a compliment. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. No. He's
0: he's much in demand as a as a voice actor these days. But yeah, I I always forget. I, I think of sixty one as the start of the expansion era, and it was. But there's this one awkward season where it, it's the old only year right I I think in you know since the AL came in where you had the two leagues having a different number of games which is uh, I I always think of like okay they started playing 162 not 154 but there was sort of a a staggered right I mean I guess subsequently there have been some differences in, in number of teams but not number of games so it's a little unclean they didn't do it in a synchronized way but I guess they were upset about that at the time too or at least the NL was
3: yeah, no, it's it's fascinating, you know, to watch the owners feuding. Uh, that's something that, you know, obviously goes back in baseball history all the time. But, uh, you know, they were supposed to do this uh, together in, in 1962. It was supposed to be the big year of expansion. And uh, the AL decided, you know, right after the World Series, let's go ahead and do it right now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't a good move uh, for anybody. And, you know, it probably hampered the... Uh, the Angels and the Expansion Senators uh, for a while, but uh, you know, they had to start play very, very quickly.
0: Yeah, they jumped the gun. Well, thank you very much for uh, taking us up to, to the eve of modernity here and your contributions have been much appreciated. We've learned a lot from your past class. Have, have you learned anything <laughs> in the course of uh, researching for this yeah. segment or was, was most of what you sent us known
3: to you? No, a lot of this was was pretty new to me. And, uh, you know, you and I had discussed uh, early on with Richard about, uh, you know, kind of going up through the years. And certainly my, you know, personal uh, research interests are are kind of in the early 20th century. So building up, uh, you know, into 1960, uh, kind of got out of my wheelhouse a little bit. But uh, Mm -hmm. it was a lot of fun to to read, you know, some of the newspapers uh, in the 40s and 50s, because, you know, we think of if you pay attention to, you know, TV and movies, uh, you know, that's supposedly the golden age of, of baseball, at least, you know, for certain generations. Um, but the reality was there was a ton of change and, you know, a ton of just very radical changes in baseball. Not only uh, who was playing, you know, Jackie Robinson and all the former Negro League stars, but you know, where they were playing with the relocations and, you know, just the ballparks they were playing in. I mean, all of it was changing. It was just a lot going on in those years. And so it was really interesting to kind of, you know, dig in and, and see what people were saying at the time. I mean, that's really, you know, what I've always loved as a listener about these past blasts. So is, is finding out, you know, what people were saying at the time. And it's, uh, it's always interesting because it's not always what you think.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: yeah. What was your process? Because uh, Richard, of course, had written extensively about early baseball and the origins of the sport. And so he had just a a library of old clips that he could pull from. But what was your typical process for generating Pass blasts?
3: Well, my my first process was if I could find something that uh, would make either of the two of you laugh, (laughs) Uh, or possibly grown, uh, depending (laughs) on the year. But, uh, you know, I was just trying to find something that was interesting. I figured if it was, you know, interesting to any of us, it would also be interesting to listeners. And, um, you know, the big thing uh, that uh, I was always looking for was, you know, trying to find commentary, trying to find editorials, um, which isn't always easy, because they're not well marked uh, in the newspapers um, back then. And so it was, you know, a lot of sports writers did not actually, uh, express a lot of strong opinions. So it was, uh, trying to find some editorials or some, you know, original commentary to figure out, you know, what people really thought, uh, other than just, you know, wire stories, AP stories, uh, about these events, you know, those are pretty easy to find, but, you know, figuring out what the actual people thought or what they said, uh, in those years when, you know, not a lot of players or executives were being directly quoted in the newspapers. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, uh, that was always. A- a a little bit of a challenge uh, to find those. But, you know, when you come up with some good ones, some people are very, very honest and not very media savvy, Uh, even, you know, the owners and the executives. So that was uh, always a lot of fun. I
0: wanted to ask, since this is largely a Hall of Fame episode and you were following Jay here, and we were talking a bit about Carlos Beltran and his uh, level of support in his first year of the ballot, what were the ramifications for, for some of the the Black Sox players or the, the clean Sox who were on the Black Sox squad? Obviously, everyone knows about Joe Jackson, but beyond him, I, I mean, you had, you know, guys like Ray Schock, who got in, which might be surprising to people if they just look at his war these days, I suppose, or you had someone like Eddie Seacott, right, who uh, maybe has the stats uh, more so than than Shock did, although different standards at different positions. I mean, did it dog guys when the Hall of Fame became a thing some years after the Black Sox scandal came to light and there were players who were eligible who who could have been considered? Have you researched that at all?
3: Yes, and you know it's it's interesting to note that in the very first uh, election uh, by the baseball writers in 1936, Shoeless Joe did receive two votes uh, because nobody quite knew whether he was eligible or not uh, for the Hall of Fame, and so he did receive two votes. Um, and you know it, it was always a question, and it remained a question for decades afterwards. Um, until 1991, uh, when P. Rose was becoming eligible and they decided that anyone on the ban list uh, should not be eligible for the Hall of Fame. But, you know, it remained an open question. And so there was always this, you know, kind of lingering thought in the background. Should should we be allowed to uh, vote for these guys or should we not? And, uh, you know, Eddie Seacott, the pitcher, is the only one uh, who by his stats, uh, should be, you know, considered for the Hall of Fame. None of the others either played long enough or, or did well enough, uh, at least a, among the banned Black Sox, uh, to get elected. But uh, Seacott, you know, has a has a case, and he probably would have gotten in, you know, in the 1950s, just like a whole lot of other pitchers that, you know, nobody thinks too much about uh, 100 years later. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, as far as the Clean Sox, it's interesting because they actually probably benefited from the scandal. You know, Ray mm-hmm. Shock probably is in the Hall of Fame because he was an honest player in 1919 mm-hmm. i think that helped uh you know spur his reputation and and made him seem you know more heroic uh than he actually was on the field you know just by his catching so uh, i think he's in and you know possibly red Faber uh, is also in uh, for that reason as well i mean a great pitcher but uh if he wasn't in the hall of fame i'm not sure you know too many people would be upset about it
0: yeah right and and shock got in in the mid fifties Faber got in in the mid sixties so that was after the character clause came in in the mid forties although I know not everyone paid attention to that clause initially, but they did get in during the time where conceivably you you could have used that to help get them in as opposed to keeping players out, which is often how it 's leveraged so Just as uh, Richard passed the baton to you, you are passing the Pass Blast baton to someone else and it's actually a protege of yours uh, that you connected us with to take us the rest of the way up to the present. His name is David Lewis and he has already submitted his uh, first Pass Blast, which everyone will hear next time. But since uh, you made the introduction here, you want to tell us a little bit about David just to uh, set the scene for upcoming Pass Blast?
3: Yeah, no. David's uh, you know great uh, student or not student. He's a graduate now, but uh, he's uh, one of our former interns at Saber. One of my favorite interns that uh, we've had working with us over the last couple of years, and um, he actually uh, came down to the Saber convention in Baltimore last summer and delivered his first uh, research presentation, a yeah. history of, of Braves Field and uh, focusing on the architecture of it. That's kind of his background in uh, historic preservation studies. Uh, so that's uh, he's, he's really a, a sharp uh, sharp kid. He's He's, you know, got a lot, uh, a lot of good baseball knowledge uh, up in there, and so it'll be uh, great to pass the baton and uh, you know see where he takes it. This was something that uh, Richard and I had talked about. Richard Hershberger and I had talked about uh, a couple months ago and passing the baton on, and so I'm happy to uh, pass it on to David. Mm-hmm.
0: And David also spent some time working at the Hall of Fame too, just to to bring everything into a nice little <laughs> tied together bow here. Full
1: circle.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we've been linking to these things all along, but uh, if you haven't availed yourself of the option yet, you can follow Jacob on Twitter at buckweaver. You can find his website at JacobPumrenke.com. You can find his extensive writing about the Black Sox and other subjects and, of course, appreciate his work for Sabre. So, Jacob, uh, thanks so much for, for coming on to deliver the, the final Pass Blast and also for taking us through the last several decades.
3: It was a pleasure. Thanks to see you both.
0: All right, that will just about do it for today. If you want more Jay Jaffe in your life, and who wouldn't, you can catch him on Fangraphs Audio this week as well. He will be talking to Hall of Fame ballot tracker mastermind Ryan Thibodeau on there. We will also have more Hall of Fame-adjacent content on our next episode. Probably some Royals-related content coming up soon. Also, we're just waiting for Zach Granke to resign. That's going to happen, right? Get that done, Royals. In one note, we talked about the new dimensions at Rogers Center, the Blue Jays' home park, last time. They're moving the fences in and up, and we talked about that in terms of the impact on offense. According to some comments by Mark Shapiro of the Blue Jays last month, they have run the numbers and determined that these changes supposedly will not affect the pitcher-batter balance in the park. We'll see how that plays out in practice because the fences will be shallower. Then again, there will be less foul territory and the fences will be higher. So they seem to think that those things will compensate for making the fences a little less deep. And the rationale wasn't so much juicing offense or changing offense. According to Shapiro, quote, when we're done next year, the seats will actually this will be a novel idea, the seats will actually look at the batter-pitcher instead of looking into the outfield. Again, because it was a multi-purpose stadium, a lot of our seats are angled toward the outfield. You have to turn your head to watch the action. So we'll have more baseball-specific seats that are more focused on the action on the infield, mostly on the pitcher-catcher. They'll be closer to the field. They won't be as far because the circle creates the distance. If you create more of a V-shape or a diamond shape, you'll move the seats closer to the field, less foul territory. He also said, I think a cool thing will be there's also going to be a couple angles in the fence. So you'll see a ball hit the fence and kind of care them in a unique way. I like that. It strikes me that every old ballpark since the inception of the game had its unique outfield that created some character. When it's complete circle, as Roger Center was, there's not a lot of character. So we're going to create some unique angles and aspects that don't exist now, but we were careful to not have it with defined ballpark attributes, meaning not make it a right-handed hitter's park or a left-handed hitter's park or a pitcher's park. We were Careful to try to keep it neutral so supposedly that was the thinking you can support effectively wild on patreon by going to patreon.com effectively wild the following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going help us stay ad free and get themselves access to some perks Holger True, Mac Mashburn, Caleb Cabo, Michael Hathaway, and Mark Olinger. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group, coming up on 1,000 members. You can help us reach that milestone. You can also get access to monthly bonus episodes on your own personal private feed, plus playoff live streams, discounts on merch, and ad-free fangraphs memberships, and many other goodies. If you're a Patreon supporter, you can contact us via the Patreon site. If not, you can email us the old-fashioned way via podcast at fangraphs.com. Send us your questions, comments, suggestions. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. And you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. We will be back with one more episode before the end of the week. Talk to you then.